God was not an illusion to C.S. Lewis. Is that volume okay? In 1931, he had converted to belief in God. He was a commanding presence in tutorials and in the lecture halls of Maudlin College. But beneath the outward mask of confidence and professional success, he still struggled with his faith. All right, if I can just get it to show the picture, then we'll be in business. <laughs> I'm appalled to see how much of the change I had thought I had undergone lately was only imaginary. For the first time, I examined myself with a serious, practical purpose. And there I found a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions. Lewis still was very much aware of his own flaws, his shortcomings, his short temper, his impatience you know, with ignorance, uh, his lack of charity toward other human beings. But he was aware that he was called to be differently with them. Depth under depth of self-love, self-admiration, pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is essentially competitive in a way the other vices are not. Pride is a spiritual cancer. It is my besetting sin. <clears throat> the real work seems still to be done. When Lewis first converted, he wasn't happy because the first thing that happened to him was the realization that God was God and that he was not his own God. God was a transcendental interferer barging into Lewis's life and saying, you're not God, I'm God. It must be understood that my conversion at that point was only to theism, pure and simple. I knew nothing yet about the Incarnation. The God to whom I surrendered was sheerly non-human. Lewis believed there was a God, but he did not yet have a specific way to worship him. He was attracted to Hinduism and Christianity. I think Lewis made a conventional objection to Christianity that it's so much like other religions dying and rising gods, and uh, redemption from sin, and the triumph of life over death. These seem to be common patterns so they could be explained psychologically instead of historically. And then one of his friends, who was an atheist, who looked at the life of Christ and said, one thing seems to have really happened once, and that shocked Lewis. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of toughs, were not, as I would still have put it, safe. Where could I turn? Was there then no escape? He was reading G.K. Chesterton, because Chesterton tells, in effect, the history of the world and how it was leading up to the Incarnation. A great man knows he is not God, and the greater he is, the better he knows it. The Gospels declare that this mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. The most that any religious prophet has said was that he was the true servant of such a being. But that the Creator was present in the daily life of the Roman Empire, that is something unlike anything else in nature. It is the one great startling statement that man has made since he spoke his first articulate word. It makes dust and nonsense of comparative religion. He begins to read the New Testament in Greek. <clears throat> he begins to understand that the New Testament is not just a set of stories, but actually a witness to the presence of a historical human being who embodies the spirit of God that this person did not send. And so this was only possible if this person truly was God in human form. The claims that
Christians believe actually came from Jesus are either absolutely true, and this argument stems from Chesterton, either they're absolutely true, or Jesus needs to be confined to the lunatic fringe. To believe in some sort of a God is fairly comfortable. It's more inconvenient to believe in a God who is so specific and so particular that you can say, there he is in history, there are his words, there are my responsibilities, I can't make it up. As I drew near to Christianity, I felt a resistance almost as strong as my previous resistance to theism. As strong, but shorter lived, for I understood it better. At each step, one had less chance to call one's soul one's own. Lewis simply did not understand where Christ fitted into it, until finally that night in 1931, he had invited Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, two of his closest friends, to Morgan College. It was a windy night, they went along before dinner, they walked along Addison's Walk, talking about mythology. They stayed up to 4 a.m. and Tolkien did his work well. What Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. I was mysteriously moved by it. The reason was that in pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth. His imaginative questionings <coughs> and his imaginative longings came together by focusing upon the, the Christian Gospels, as um, outlined by Tolkien and, and Dyson. He was a literary critic. And as such, he said, I know myth when I see it, I know legend when I see it, and I know an eyewitness account when I see it. I recognize metaphor when it's there. All of this is in the Bible. All of it is inspired. But far from all of it is literal history. Well, Dyson and Tolkien pointed out that the only difference was, we don't know that Osiris walked the earth, but Jesus left footprints. People saw him and talked about it. As we continued walking, we were interrupted by a rush of wind, which came so suddenly on the still warm evening and sent so many leaves pattering down that we thought it was raining. We all held our breath, appreciating the ecstasy of such a moment. mistake to think that argument converted C.S. Lewis because he thinks that we have to be oblique. We can't look at things directly. They escape us. This is what his attempt at introspection taught him. When you're thinking and now you start to think about your thinking, you're not thinking about the original object anymore. You know, I'm thinking about baseball. Now I'm thinking about how I'm thinking about baseball. And I think about baseball. Very elusive. So Lewis understood that we had to have an oblique approach. As he put it, you have to sneak past the watchful dragons of self-consciousness. Okay, so we'll see some more of that next time. But for now, uh, we will go back to our PowerPoint. And we're going to talk a little bit about Tolkien. And one of the things that I hope that you will get out of this class is that it is impossible to really understand C.S. Lewis and his work without knowing about Tolkien and their friendship. Because absolutely one of the cornerstone factors in Lewis's <coughs> life, in his theological development, and in his literary development. So I want to just look briefly um, and remind you a little bit of Lewis's timeline. And we, we've talked about this before, but remember 1917, He's studying at University College, Oxford, 
And then he enlists, this is his freshman year, he enlists and he meets Patty Moore and they are at Keeble College doing officer's training. And then on his 19th birthday, uh, he is sent to the front lines in the Battle of the Somme. And if you know your World War I history, you know that was one of the most gruesome slaughterhouse areas of the First World War. Lewis was wounded badly at the Battle of Arras, and his friend was killed in that battle. Uh, in 1919, Lewis was discharged from the army, went back to Oxford, uh, resumed his work at University College, and then he graduated in 1924 with a triple first, uh, which we said is like graduating summa cum laude in three different disciplines, those being for him uh, philosophy, classics, and English literature. So a uh, remarkable achievement. Uh, he is invited to become a tutor in philosophy at University College, uh, which is a great honor. Uh, one of the remarkable things about Lewis is he's smart enough to be a professor at Oxford in multiple fields, which is highly unusual. And then he is offered a position as a fellow of Maudlin College, uh, where he would stay until 1954. Now, one of the things about Oxford, if you look at those tea towels over there, um, you'll see there are many, many colleges at Oxford. And there are degrees of prestige among these colleges. Maudlin is one of the most prestigious of them. It has piles of money, it's ancient, and it has lots of famous alumni. So getting a position at Maudlin is really sort of at the top of the tree for Oxford. Um, I'm going to ask you to look at your handouts for a minute and pull out the one that says Tolkien Biographical Timeline. I didn't want to put all this on the PowerPoint because the type would be so tiny that my friends in the peanut gallery back there might not be able to read it. So I'm going to blaze through this pretty quickly. Tolkien's a little bit older than Lewis, and he was born in South Africa. Uh, in a town called Blumfontein, uh, which was an aspirational name uh, because it means blooming fountain, but it was uh, really more of a desolate desert kind of area. Um, Tolkien and his mother um, decamped from there early in Tolkien's life. They hated South Africa. Uh, both his parents were British. Um, Tolkien's father stayed in South Africa working and then became gravely ill and came back to England and, uh, and died. Well, he died while he was in South Africa preparing to come back to England. So around the age of four, Tolkien lost his father. Uh, Tolkien won a scholarship to King Edward's school in Birmingham, uh, which was the Church of England school there. Uh, he did well there and uh, developed an affinity for languages and for the study of words. Uh, in 1904, uh, Tolkien's mother was diagnosed with diabetes and then got several complications and died. So Tolkien becomes an orphan in 1904 at the age of 12. So he is an orphan. The family has no money, and he is taken in by a priest at the Birmingham Oratory uh, and... This priest uh, was Tolkien's mentor, really, for the rest of his life. So this was the beginning of Tolkien's conversion and religious faith that developed um, under the mentorship of this priest, Father Morgan. And Tolkien began to excel in school. Um, he became the school librarian, which uh, doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but that was a post of great honor in a British prep school. And he founded the TCBS. Um, the TCBS was hugely important in Tolkien's life. It the letters stand for the Tea Club and Barovian Society. <laughs> Tea Club and Barovian Society, called the Barovian Society because there was a department store called Barrows that had a tea room that these guys would sneak out to to go to tea. So, um, sounds pretty wild and crazy, doesn't it? So, the TCBS, uh, Tolkien goes and with his friends starts the society and they start reading out loud to each other. 
This is something that is not what you would expect for teenage guys to do, but they were enamored of the same kind of mythology, particularly Norse mythology. And this was the first time, after all of this loss that Tolkien had had in his life, the first time that he allowed himself to have friends. So he became deeply bonded uh, with the other guys that were in this group. Um, they went through uh, the rest of their prep school career together and then all went either to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, all of them uh, end up in 1915 uh, going into the First World War. All of the members of the TCBS, except Tolkien, died. So remember, his parents have died. All of his friends have died. Um, he has been in love with this girl um, but for a variety of reasons, has not been able to be uh, in the same town with her. They reconnect um, in the middle of the war, and they're married before he's deployed again. So uh, he comes back after the war to Oxford, uh, puts his love of words to work, and is a researcher for the Oxford English Dictionary. And uh, that doesn't sound like it should be a full-time job, but it was, and they had a whole staff of people researching words and Tolkien fell in love with that uh, and his uh, coursework prepared him for that because he was a philologist which is something that's not so easy to say um, but a philologist basically studies language not to learn to speak a language but how languages work uh, how words acquire meanings how you develop a structure in a language and Tolkien became probably the most genius philologist of the past hundred years. So he works at Oxford. Um, in 1925, he's appointed to a professorship at Oxford. Uh, remember, this is right about the same time that Lewis is coming to Maudlin. And Tolkien starts a new club. And interestingly, it has the same initials in English, TCBS, the Coalbiters Society. And in this case, they are organized for the study of Icelandic literature. Okay, so perhaps a little obscure and uh, perhaps not very interesting to most of us, particularly because they were reading a lot of it in Icelandic. Uh, but Tolkien, uh, being a brave man, after he met Lewis uh, in 1926 at a faculty tea, invites Lewis to come along to the Coalbiters Society. And uh, Lewis, to his great credit, accepted this invitation. If I were invited to go uh, to a literary society that was studying things in Icelandic, I'm not sure I would have gone. Uh, but Lewis goes with Tolkien, and they discover they have the same love for Norse myth. The more that they talk, they see that their family backgrounds are very similar of having lost one or both parents, having been sent away from home at an early age, finally developing friends, having the friends killed in the war, and their academic interests are very parallel as well. So they start spending a lot of time together, and then Tolkien takes the first step in 1929 that really moves this friendship to a different level, and he brings one of the writings that he's done that is a fantasy that sort of uh, prefigures Middle-earth, he brings a manuscript of it to Lewis and asks him to read it and tell him what he thinks of it. Now, if any of you are writers, you know that one of the most vulnerable things you can do is to take something that you have written and give it to someone else to read and ask what they think about it. Now, keep in mind, Lewis had the reputation at Oxford of having a razor-sharp mind and a mean wit. Lewis was not regarded as a nice person uh, before his conversion. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this. I have a friend who, was a, who knew Lewis and knew Lewis before his conversion and after his conversion. And I've heard a lot of stories that I will share with you later on about that. But uh, the point of the matter is that was a big risk and a big step for Tolkien to ask Lewis to do that. And interestingly, Lewis loved what Tolkien had written. He was deeply moved by it, 
There were some things he suggested, but it bonded them at a whole different level uh, because of Tolkien having taken this risk. So Tolkien, shortly after this, probably wrote that famous line, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. He didn't know what a hobbit was yet, uh, but this was the beginning of the Lord of the Rings. And then on that fateful night of September 19th, 1931, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson come to Maudlin to meet with Lewis. They come probably for Evensong. They go to dinner. They walk in Addison's Walk. They meet and talk in Lewis's rooms until four in the morning. And at the end of that evening, Lewis has uh, converted to Christianity. So it is a remarkable story. And it is very fixed in uh, the history of Maudlin. People at Maudlin College Oxford still talk about this. There's a plaque on Addison's walk um, to Lewis um, that incorporates one of Lewis's poems. But I'm just going to share with you some pictures um, of this because it helps, I think, in reading it to understand what it looked like where they were. Um, so one of the things also about this that's important is that in 1933, shortly after this, the Inklings are born. And the Inklings, interestingly, most people know that that was a group of friends, but they were a remarkable group because they were all Christians, they were all brilliant, um, they were in different fields, and most of them were writers. And they would read what they had written to each other, and they would encourage each other to write various things. But part of what was remarkable is that they met at least twice a week for decades and developed a really deep camaraderie and friendship and fellowship with one another. Most of their time they spent at a pub called the Eagle and Child, which they referred to as the Bird and Baby. Uh, and there was a little room in the back called the Rabbit Room where they hung out. We'll talk more about the Inklings later, but this is the precursor to all of that. So when they went to Maudlin, probably the first thing that they did was to go to Coral Evensong. The chapel at Maudlin is beautiful. It's 15th century. These choristers, probably one of the top four or five choirs in the world. Very, very, very high standard of excellence. Um, when you go in there, even today, um, there are around 100 candles lit every evening at Evensong. The acoustics are unbelievable. You feel like you have had an amazing, mystical, spiritual experience just by being there. So they would have been in that chapel, and then right after that, they probably would have gone to dinner in the Senior Commons Room. The Senior Commons Room, um, most people don't get to go into that. I fortunately have been sneaked in there uh, by a friend. This is a little railroad thing I was telling you about a couple of weeks ago that is designed to keep the port or the Madeira at room temperature because the other side of the room is really cold. It's all stone built in the 1400s. And so there's this little track and it goes underneath this table in the front, but it's all right in front of the fire. So you can send the port and the Madeira back and forth across the room um, without getting up, but while keeping it at room temperature. So they probably ate there. Um, it is possible if they didn't eat there, that they ate here, um, which is the great hall of Maudlin College, also built in the 1400s, looks a lot like Harry Potter. Um, you can tell this is the high table at the end down here. Um, it is absolutely magnificent. So they would have dined in splendor. They would have been waited on hand and foot during their dinner. And then they probably afterwards um, would have gone for coffee in this sort of nondescript room that is the senior fellows room. And um, the, again, this is somewhere where no one ever gets to go, but I've sneaked in there and <laughs> sneaked a picture um, with my, well, it was legitimate. I wasn't really sneaking. I was invited. But uh, you can see there's port, there's coffee, and then there's this little book. And the funny thing about this book is one of the weird traditions they have at Maudlin is that when you uh, become a fellow of Maudlin, they weigh you. 
and they enter your weight, and then when you leave or retire, they enter the weight that you were when you left. And that's what that little book is. So don't ask me why. Is it in stones? Um, no. <laughs> oh, well, yes, actually, yes, you're right. She said, is it in stone? I was thinking engraving, but she was meaning units of measure. Yeah. Yes. So they would have come out, and it would have been sunset, probably. And this is the new building where Lewis's rooms were at sunset, and it glows sort of pink when the sun hits it the right way. And the River Cherwell goes right next to it. And this pathway that you see over here is Addison's Walk. And I'm blanking on who Addison is. It's Joseph Addison who's famous, but I don't remember what he did. So if anyone knows, please feel free to tell us. But he was a graduate of Maudlin. And the interesting thing is Addison's Walk, one of the curious things about Oxford is there are these parks of hundreds of acres that are right in the middle of the university. So when you go out on this walk, it is as if you are out in the middle of nature. So they would have gone across the bridge and they would have started walking. And this is Addison's walk uh, with me and Colin Durier and some students uh, on this. It's a long way. It's, it's sort of a, an oval that goes uh, for miles around there, it feels like. And there are a lot of really beautiful old trees uh, and wetlands and a lot of wildlife. There's a meadow in the middle of it. Um, there are uh, occasionally a deer. There are a lot of waterfowl in there. Brian, does it intersect at all with Christchurch Meadows? No. Nope. They post such big, huge... Nope. Okay. Other, other side. Okay. But those are beautiful, too. Uh, and this is one of the... There are a lot of just ancient stone things that are littered around Addison's Walk um, where you can sit down or there might be part of a statue or a ruin or whatever. So you just imagine them going through. This is the bridge that goes um, from the... the building where Lewis's rooms were. And then this is the poem um, that's on the post up there on the bridge, uh, which is one of Lewis's poems that we'll talk about um, later on. So this is another part of Addison's walk. And the important thing about this night is that as they talked, Tolkien and Dyson were really working on Lewis. And they were working on him to change his mind. And they were working on him because they believed that the truth of Christianity was so strong and so evident to anyone who would, with an open mind, actually seek the truth that Lewis ought to come round to that way of thinking. But that that particular approach didn't work very well with Lewis. Um, I think it did have some impact, but the, the larger impact they had was through talking about the world of myth. And for most of us, when we think about myth, uh, we think back to junior high when we had to read Edith Hamilton or Dolaire's Greek mythology or something like that, and we think about stories like that. And that's not wrong, but that's not exactly what they mean by myth here. In this context, myth is more what you think of as the um, heroic epic that is designed to convey truth with a capital T in a way that resonates with you emotionally. That you may not be able to put into words why it moves you so deeply, but it does move you at a very deep level. And so they switch, switch this conversation over to myth. And as they do that, the literary part of Lewis and the Zainzuk part of Lewis and the intuition part of Lewis all really respond to that. And then they have this moment of sheer natural beauty. Now remember, all through this evening, they have been surrounded by unbelievable beauty. Beauty in music and the Evensong, beauty in this wonderful dinner, beauty in the friendship and conversation, beauty in nature, all of that. So they're surrounded by all of this beauty. And then this wind comes up and takes the leaves and swirls it around in a way that is just magical to them. And that moment um, really impacts them. And they go back up to Lewis's rooms 
and talk until four in the morning. And then the next day when Lewis is going to the zoo with his brother, he finally realizes that he's taken the full step and become a Christian. So I'm going to ask you to pull out your Mythopoeia poem or your Mythopoeia poem, however you want to call it. And the interesting thing about this poem, part of the reason that I would say this poem is hugely important is that it is a debate between two points of view. Yeah, if you don't have one, there are extra copies in the back. Uh, one point of view is the strictly rationalist point of view, that there is no God, there is no transcendent anything, uh, there's no difference between a man, a rock, a gnat, a cockroach. It's all a cosmic accident. It is all futile. There's no such thing as truth and beauty and goodness. There's only getting ahead of the next guy. So that's one point of view, which was Lewis's atheistic viewpoint at the time. Tolkien, on the other hand, is expressing the Christian point of view, which is full of wonder and awe and beauty and truth and love and goodness and hope. And part of the reason I believe this poem is so important is we live in an age of drudgery. There is not a lot of wonder left in the world. And our media elites are always feeding us this constant atheistic viewpoint and Christians are made to look stupid and a whole list of adjectives that are unappealing. But I think that if we really understand what Tolkien is getting at in this poem, that it equips us to be able to speak into the culture in which we find ourselves. The other thing about this poem is that there are aspects of it that are almost prophetic in terms of Lewis and Tolkien's relationship and their later works. So I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to read this entire thing out loud to you at the risk that your eyes may roll back in your head. Um, and if they do, it's okay. Uh, but what I want you to do, I'd like you to get a pen out if you've got one. And as I read through this, even if you don't understand the poem, we're going to come back and unpack it. Even if you don't understand it, if there are lines that you think are interesting or that the sound of the line resonates with you in some way, just put a little star by that, okay? And part of the reason I want to take the time to do this is that this poem is going to frame a lot of what we're going to be talking about later in this class. And you'll notice the dedication says Philomethus to Mesomethus. Philomethus uh, means lover of myth. Mesomethus, hater or disparager of myth, Tolkien being Philomethus, uh, Lewis being Mesomethus. And Lewis said during this fateful night uh, that myths were lies and therefore worthless, although breathed through silver. And this poem Tolkien wrote to recount their conversation. So this is a little bit like being a fly on that wall or a fly in the tree or a fly on the path following them as they are talking. So here we go. You look at trees and label them just so, for trees are trees and growing is to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space. A star's a star. Some matter in a ball compelled to courses mathematical amid the regimented cold inane where destined atoms are each moment slain at bidding of a will to which we bend and must but only dimly apprehend. Great processes march on as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals and as on page or written without clue with script and lemming packed of various hue an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien, except as kin from one remote origo, gnat, man, stone, and sun. God made the petrius rocks, the arboreal trees, tellurian earth, and stellar stars, and these homuncular men, 
who walk upon the ground with nerves that tingle, touched by light and sound, the movements of the sea, the wind and boughs, green grass, the large, slow oddity of cows, thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, slime crawling up from mud to live and die. These each are duly registered and print the brain's contortions with a separate dent. Yet trees are not trees until so named and seen, and never were so named till those had been whose speech's involuted breath unfurled. Faint echo and dim picture of the world, but neither record nor a photograph, being divination, judgment, and a laugh, response of those that fell to stir within by deep monition movements that were kin to life and death of trees, of beasts, of stars. Free captives undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience, and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. Great powers they slowly brought out of themselves, and looking backwards they beheld the elves that wrought on cunning forges in the mind, and light and dark on secret looms entwined. He sees no stars, who does, does not see them first of living silver made, that sudden burst to flame like flowers beneath an ancient song, whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, and no earth, unless the mother's womb whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. Though now, though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rag of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods in their houses out of darkened light and sowed the seed of dragons, t'was our right used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. Yes, wish fulfillment dreams we spend to cheat our timid hearts and ugly fact defeat. Whence came the wish, and whence the power to dream, or some things fair and others ugly deem? All wishes are not idle nor in vain. Fulfillment we devise, for pain is pain, not for itself to be desired but ill, or else to strive or to subdue the will alike were graceless. And of evil, this alone is deadly certain. Evil is. Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley in an guarded room, though small and bare upon a clumsy loom, weave tissues gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadow's sway. Blessed are the men of Noah's race, that build their little arcs, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary towards a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. Blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme, of things not found within recorded time. It is not that they have forgot the night, or bid us flee to organize delight in lotus isles of economic bliss, for swearing souls to gain a Circe kiss and counterfeit at that, machine produced, the bogus seduction of the twice seduced. Such isles they saw afar and ones more fair, and those that hear them yet may yet beware, they have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat, but off to victory have tuned the lyre, and kindled hearts with legendary fire, illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns, as yet by no man seen. I would that I might with the minstrels sing and stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I would be with the mariners of the deep that cut their slender planks on mountain steep and voyage upon a vague and wandering quest. 
for some have passed beyond the fabled West. I would with the beleaguered fools be told that keep an inner fastness where their gold impure and scanty yet they loyally bring to mint an image blurred of distant king or in fantastic banners weave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen. I will not walk with your progressive apes erect and sapient before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends if by God's mercy progress ever ends and does not ceaselessly resolve the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable, wherein no part the little maker has with maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. In paradise, perchance, the eye may stray from great gazing upon everlasting day, to see the day illumined and renew from mirrored truth the likeness of the true. Then looking on the blessed land, t'will see that all is as it is, and yet made free. Salvation changes not, nor yet destroys garden nor gardener, children nor their toys. Evil it will not see, for evil lies not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes, not in the source, but in malicious choice, and not in sound, but in the tuneless voice. In paradise they look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. Be sure they still will make, not being dead, and poets shall have flames upon their head, and harps whereon their faultless fingers fall, there each shall choose forever from the all. So, it is an amazing poem, but the first time you read it, it's really easy to just think, what? Um, but there are, there are layers of riches in here that we're going to unpack. Um, I'm going to ask you to be brave and raise your hand if there was any line that you particularly liked. Any line? Yes, Cynthia. It's just because it's a great picture. It's large, slow oddity of cows. Yes. I love it. <laughs> yes. Down in the fourth one or the third. Yes, it's on the first page um, in the third, third stanza. Yes. And it is a great image. The way things move and, and oh, yeah. this, the large, slow oddity of cows. Yes. Uh, why do you think that might be important in Tolkien's argument for God? Well, I mean, where else? Who thinks that up? I mean, you know, where, where would that come from? Right, yeah, it's not evolutionarily efficient. No. No. Yes, no. exactly. Okay, good. Mary Ann. Um, evil that will not see for evil flies, not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes. Not in the solace, but in delicious choice. Not in the ceremony, but in humans. Yes, yes, which is right at the end of the poem. What did you like about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, and the, his whole there's a whole theology of evil and goodness that is in this poem um, that we're going to try to unpack a little bit. And this whole thing about the way you see is incredibly important in this poem as well. Great. Other things that people like, Elizabeth. I liked number eight. It, it's to me. Mankind. <laughs> yes, the men of Noah's race on their little arts that are frail. Yeah, those images are just fantastic. Yeah, Todd. I would have to study this more, but it kind of jumped out at me. Um, I would with beleaguered fools be told that keep an inner fastness where their gold and pure and scantily. Mm -hmm. All of that, and talks about. Um, Blurred of a distant king, yep, and a lord unseen, yep. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have to unpack it more. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh, that's one of my very favorite parts too, because there's this whole idea of you are waiting for this king who's been away for a long time, and instead of spending the gold on yourself, you're making images to worship that king. 
Does that sound like anything? <laughs> yes. See ya. This poem takes you on a trip from the creation of the earth to the new, new heaven. Yes, that is exactly right. Very perceptive. Other lines that people liked. Yes. I hope I'm reading it right. Um, I don't have my glasses either. But <laughs> such, this is near the end, kind of on the next to the last <clears throat> sort of paragraph. Blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. And then we come on down. Mm -hmm. Such isles they saw afar, and one is more fair, and those that hear them yet may yet beware. This is the main part. They had seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat. And yet they would not, um, but off to victory, have tuned the lyre and kindled hearts with legendary fire. Illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet by no man seen. I didn't read it very well at the end, but the part that for me really jumped out is maybe I'm reading it wrong, but they have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat. To me, unless I'm reading it completely all wrong, that's sort of that statement of those who have seen the wonder of of the one, you know, whatever words he has in here to denote God, that even when they've seen death, real death, at least physically, and defeat, yet they would not in despair retreat. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what paragraph is that? That, that is uh, paragraph, is that paragraph, paragraph nine. Which one was that? Paragraph nine. That speaks to both of their experiences in World War One. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's the whole idea of kindling hope. Kindling hope, even though you are in circumstances that might look dark and as if you should despair and that you are surrounded by death because there is light from suns not yet seen. And also that part about such isles they saw afar. That's, you know, obviously, or it seems almost obvious now that it would be with Lord of the Rings, that far off country. Okay. Does it have any relationship, do you think it could have? There, it certainly could. There's a whole lot of stuff going on with these islands and Cersei and all that that's going back to um, some Greek things that we're going to unpack next time. Yeah. Cynthia. I just like the way that in the construction of it, the first half of it, he's certainly acknowledging this, this denial of myth of anything above or beyond. And he acknowledges ego is. And then he switches in his tone and it's the beatitude. Right, exactly. Lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Then he begins to then he begins to talk about the land that is that we have that echo. Yes. He and the pair first the it you know, it is what it is. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's saying but it's not all that it is. Mm -hmm. Not what it seems. Mm -hmm. And it changes into the language of blessing. Yeah. Blessing. So and the Beatitudes parallel is really, <laughs> it's very important because if you study the Beatitudes, which are at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, you will see that blessed are construction. And yet all of the groups that Jesus names as blessed are the ones that are looked down upon by the world. It's not the rich, the powerful, the beautiful, the celebrities. It's the poor, the poor in spirit, um, the meek, you know, all of these kinds of things that are very similar to the, the people that Tolkien is referencing here. So um, I would encourage you to keep reading in this, mark lines that you like. Um, we're going to go through and try to unpack this. Now the risk of unpacking a poem is that Poems can mean a lot of different things. And you can't really ever say that that's wrong. It may mean something to you that it doesn't mean to anyone else, and that's perfectly fine. 
Um, we do know some about some of the things Tolkien intended here, so we will talk about that, but if you have your own interpretation, that is just perfectly fine. Um, <laughs> but I also want to encourage you, um, if you're scuba diving or snorkeling, um, there are some good articles in here in the handouts about Tolkien's friendship with Lewis. I also want to do a big book plug again for Colin Duryea's The Gift of Friendship um, about Lewis and Tolkien. It is absolutely fabulous and will really enrich your understanding of them. So thank you. I didn't see anyone's eyes roll back in their head. Good job. Um, let me close this in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time together tonight. We thank you for your work in J.R.R. Tolkien to produce this beautiful and meaningful text for us. Lord, we pray that you would awake our hearts to wonder, that you would help us to be able to see your truth in this poem, and that that would equip us to live as your people in this world. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. One parting comment uh, before we go that uh, is a good framework for thinking about this poem. Some of you, if you were at Mere Anglicanism a couple of years ago, the opening address was given by Tom Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright, and he spoke about one of the things that we need to recover as Christians is what he called the medieval worldview of living under the vault. And what he meant by that was the vault of heaven and understanding that we live under the vault of these beautiful stars and heavens and that we live in a universe full of wonder and that we need to take our eyes off of our feet and we need to look up and understand that we live in this universe that is full of the wonder of God and that if we can begin to reclaim that, it will shift the framework that we use as we walk through each day. Did you have a question? Yeah, I did, and it had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> why did talk, I mean, why was Lewis's marriage a civil marriage? Uh, we'll get to that. Oh, okay. it, it, that's a really good question. Um, his marriage was very peculiar. Um, it started as a civil marriage, but then it became a Christian marriage, and Tolkien didn't, he was worried that the woman was a gold digger. Well, what happened to his wife? Tolkien's wife was great. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to their wives later. Hold on. You're anticipating me. Yeah. Yes, it's good. Yes, if you would leave your name tags on the table, that would be great. Thank you for your attention tonight. Have a great week. Thank <laughs> you.